Well, if you want to open your Bibles to Romans chapter 6, and uh, we'll con- we're continuing in our study of Romans, and it's beginning to move into uh, how do we live a moral life? How do we avoid sinfulness, live well? Now, uh, now I'm maybe reacting to myself, but when this topic comes up, my spirit rushes to how-tos, how to avoid sin, how to be more righteous, how to, how to do these things. I want how-tos. Usually, I kind of scoff how-to sermons. In this area, I want more how-to sermons. Um, that's my spirit. Uh, Paul is not going to do that today. It's coming. The larger idea, the larger how-to is, I guess, we figure out in our life. But this morning, as uh, we're heading into this conversation, what Paul first wants to do is adjust the way we think about things. He wants to align our minds uh, with what's to come, and, and that is important. So. Uh, I just want you to know what's coming this morning in case you're waiting for the how-tos. They're not coming this morning uh, other than how to think. How to think about life, newness in Christ, uh, walking in newness. How do we think about that? Now, that may sound impractical uh, at one level. It's tremendously practical in, in, in other levels. So if we can correct or adjust or set our minds right, really set our minds right, that bears fruit through our bodies. Uh, so our, our minds uh, work with our souls in the direction of our body. Uh, but I want you to appreciate this morning um, what is going to be talked about and what is not going to be talked about. Paul is going to talk about holy living and how we should think about it. And then the conversation over the next several weeks will build, build upon that. So it's mind alignment. And so with that said, let me uh, show you an example of poor alignment. I've been uh, doing a lot of marriage counseling, uh, pre-marriage counseling this summer. This is the season of love. And so we've had, a lot, we've had a lot of Friday nights since February where we spend with couples talking about their un, uh, upcoming weddings and marriages. And um, what if I, I, I didn't do this, but what if I did this? If I sat down with a groom-to-be, a husband-to-be, and I said to him, I got to tell you, of all the brides-to-be that I've ever met and counseled with, yours is the best. She's quality. I mean, richer or for poor, she'll stick with you in poor. Don't worry about poor. She's there. And in sickness, you got it. She's, she is going to be by, stapled by your side. For better or for worse, you don't even need a better. She's with you for worse. For poor, for sicker, for worse, she's the one for you. And what if I said, and if I kind of get a little shifty-eyed, looked around... And said, so here's the deal. 
You don't need to work. I mean, you got this thing tied up. This really is the theoretical, you can have your cake and eat it too. You have the perfect wife. The one, you don't have to do squat. You should Xbox this whole thing. Just Next 20 years, because she will be, I mean, what, what kind of dysfunctional counseling? I, I don't even mean it and I might get hit later. I mean, what kind of, who, who would I be to say that? To, to approach, to look at a relationship that is where one party to this relationship is perfect and sacrificial and loving to the utmost and counsel the other party. You can have your cake and eat it too. This is the question that Paul entertains here. So all the way up in this argument of Romans, Paul has been building inside of the Jewish faith, okay? The only faith in the known world at the time that actually believes in a moral God. Think of this. The only expressed faith of the ancient world that believed there was one God and he actually cared about righteousness, okay? Mars and Jupiter and Aphrodite, they didn't care squat about that stuff. Paul is inside of the Jewish faith describing inside of the only moral religion of the known ancient world, he's describing a faith where your moral living plays absolutely no role in your salvation. That's what he's been doing through the Gospel of Romans. He's saying, right doing, moral living, righteousness works, They are of no value. They play zero role in our salvation. Man, that that would have been a challenge for the people, the Jewish people hearing it, who have grown up knowing our God is the only God who cares about righteousness and morality, moral living. And then to hear moral living is of no value in salvation. Well, you can imagine how they would squirm under that, and out of it comes this question. It's an extreme question. It's a slanted question, but it's, it's, it's reaching towards, well, what's the point of moral living then is really where it's reaching. They say right in the beginning of the sixth chapter, what shall we say then? Are we to continue to sin that grace might abound? He's, Paul is proffering a question that he's anticipating is in their hearts. He's, he's thinking, if they're... If Paul's saying that righteousness and moral living are of no value and play no role in our salvation, then what role do they play? I mean, if Jesus is, if Jesus is that good, why even try to be richer and better and in health? Why not just soak them up in our spiritual poverty? That's the question. A, a more balanced way So say we weren't so charged about it. A more balanced way of walking into this question would be, what is the role of moral living for the Christian? If moral living does not save us, then how how do we think about it? How do we approach it? How do we approach right living for the Lord? That's the question. Okay, I want to read a few verses, just one and two, and then we'll, we'll... 
Uh, talk for a while and we'll, we'll progress. Verse 1 is, is the question itself. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And verse 2 is, is an answer. By no means, he says. How can we who died to sin still live in it? How can we who died in sin still live in it? Now, if you, and I, I trust that, you know, you guys are not going home and rereading the book of Romans on Monday and Tuesday. But if, if you uh, kind of had been fluent in the language of Romans, Paul just twisted something a little bit. He didn't actually give a new thought. It's a new thought like it is when you turn into a sock inside out. It's the same sock, just looking at it on a different side. This idea of you're dead to sin. Because so far in the book of Romans, the subject has been that sin brings death and that Christ brings life. And so death has been something we've wanted to avoid for the whole book of Romans. Death is something we've wanted to turn away from and, and to be saved from. Say, getting saved to life from death has been the consistent theme of the book. And right now, he just described life from death is dead to sin. So he kind of has this little play on words. You've died to sin. You've died to sin. Now, what does that mean? Well, some in the church think that means, well, you've died to sin. You... It's hard to talk about the word literally here. Uh, a spiritual reality is that sin no longer has any controlling influence in your life. You've died to that. It might be an impression, a Christian impression you have, so it may not be a thought that officially propagates itself. But I think this theological impression is on many people of when I come to Christ, I die to sin. And then, well, I don't think it's true. I don't think that reading is accurate. For two reasons. One, it doesn't explain the fact that the Bible again and again and again and again, the New Testament again and again and again and again, continually exhorts us to holy living. If really we came into Christ and we were really actually dead to the temptation and power of sin? Why all of the exhortation towards holy living? Why tell people, go confess your sins to one another? Why tell them, flee the devil? Why tell them to resist temptation? If we were dead to sin, it, those would be irrelevant teachings. So that's the first reason. The second reason I, I doubt that that perception is correct is that I think I love Jesus and sin still very active in my life. And I think that's true with you too. I, I just don't know if there'd be any Christian, if I've ever met a Christian who has no, has no experience of struggle in the war against sin. And so when, when Paul says here, you're dead to sin, how can we who died to sin still live in it? When he says that, I'm compelled and I believe he's not saying that our souls and our spirit and our lives are actually inexorably separated from the temptation of sin, but that he's talking about something else. 
And something else I think he's talking about is saying that we are separated or free from the penalty of sin, that sin no longer has any, should we say, judicial hold on us. There's no longer a valid accusation on us about sin. The wages of sin is death, is what Romans is going to say later, but the free gift of God is eternal life. He's saying we are no longer sitting beneath the wages of sin. We're free and from the wages of sin. All of that has died to us. In, in, the ancient, in, in the Bible, death is this permanent separation, right? Death satisfies sin. And so Paul's saying, we've died to sin. In other words, the wages of sin have all been satisfied, and we are, we're not held by them. We're not damned by them. We're not subject to them. This is how I think he starts. And he goes on to explain it. Look at three and four. So he says, we've died to sin. How can we still, why would we still live in it? Okay, and again, remember he's talking to our reason. He's trying to alter the way we think. Listen, three or four. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ, Jesus, were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. He says, you're dead to sin. And then he puts before the reader the image of baptism. Paul says, look at baptism. Don't you realize what baptism is represents? Now, I think there's all these mysterious things happening in the Christian life, but I don't think Paul is being profoundly mysterious right now. I think Paul is being very reasoned in the way he's talking. He's saying, to someone saying, well, why do I need to live holy? If Jesus is everything, if every time I sin I get more grace, well, what's the point in living holy? And he's, he immediately says, well, f- reconcile baptism to me then is what he's doing. He's just trying to draw our mind to an obvious place where we participate with Jesus Christ. And that obvious place is the baptistry. He's saying, what does this image mean to you? Of all the things that Jesus has done and said and, and, and explained in the world, of all these things, he calls us in a very personal way to experience him through baptism. He, what does that mean? He's saying, look, how is it? How, why in the world would we separate a call to walk in newness of life from our life when baptism calls us to participate with him in his death and then rise with him in his new life? This is the argument of Paul. Paul's saying, look at the baptistry by the way, this has just happened to time itself. It's very convenient. Look at the baptistry and ask yourself how you can possibly participate with Jesus in his death and not rise into newness. That's what he's saying. We say, well, how does Jesus participate in our death? Because Jesus died our death. He has literally died our death. Now, we think we're going to die. We're not really going to die, right? We're going to pass through death into new life. 
But Christ and his crucifixion and his burial has endured our death. So when we, when, when we are baptized, that's not actually happening in baptism. Baptism is, is representing it. It's a gift to the church and a gift to the Christian to remind ourselves what's at the absolute center of our faith. And here what we see is that God is calling us to remember that of all the things we participate with with the Lord, participation in his death and resurrection is fundamentally at the center. In other words, just to adjust the way you think about things. So does sin, sin matter? Does sin matter? Paul would say, think of your baptism. The liturgy, I say, at baptism, you were buried with Christ in baptism and raised with him to new life. What does that mean? I mean, it, it means because of Christ's death, when we go down, we do not stay under this water. Because of Christ's death, this moment, this life is purifying. We are washed in this life because of his death. That because I am able to share in what, participate in his death, because his death is for me, his death is for you, because he died our death, he, he, he paid our wages, he stood in our place. All of those are, are saying this thing. Because of that, we have this hope that we rise to new life. Paul would say, how can you possibly accept that gift as the penalty for sin and it not affect the way you view sin? That's what he's saying. He's saying, he's not saying this, but the implication is here. How messed up would it be for the Christian to claim the death and resurrection of Christ and yet have no changed disposition about the very things that required the death and resurrection of Christ. That's what he's saying. He's saying if sin brought Christ to this earth and brought and put Christ on the cross, and if Christ died for that, and if that's his preeminent gift to you, well, then of course you would think differently about sin. There's a lot of things that are uh, great about Christ that we like to think about. And this is, if, if this is practical, maybe this is a practical moment. Uh, there's things about Jesus that many people in the church love. So some people love the fact that he's a good teacher. He's wise. They love the proverbial Christ, the Christ of the parables. Um, the nobility of his mind. And if that's at the center of their faith, uh, right living is not. Uh, there's a lot of people who love the social justice of Christ. His care for the poor, his love for the needy. His caution against wealth and the abuse of power. His belief in justice. And those in the church who get whipped up about that and make that the center of their faith, take the cross and the empty tomb and put it out of the center of their faith. And with it goes holy living. And you find all throughout the church, the churches that are biased towards one of these hobbies, rather than, I got to call them, they're Christian hobbies because they are not the center of the faith. 
they're attracted to something that's off-center of the faith, what invariably happens is the concern for holy living slips. The side of the church that's whipped up about the Holy Spirit and the Holy Ghost and getting the Holy Ghost power and having this gift and that gift and every other kind of gift, the one that is all caught up in the power of Jesus and the Pentecost power and all of that, invariably what happens is a concern for holy living falls away. Why? Because the number one way, the fundamental central way that we participate with Jesus Christ is in his death and resurrection. And that was around sin. How can that remain in the center of our life and us not be mindful about sin and holiness and walking in newness? I would ask you this morning, if you examine your conception of the faith, is it out of balance? Are you here for fellowship? Because holy living won't really spike in you. If you're here for friendship and fellowship, which are good things, good second things, the faith will not spur you in the right way onto holy living. Okay, let's look at verse 5. He adds to it. So in verse 4, uh, well, 2, 3, 4, he starts with the notion of we've died. We, like Christ has died, we sh- too should see. Again, I think it's mostly a reasoned conversation of you should there see yourself as having died. And just as Christ was literally raised from the dead, we should expect and in our lives seek to be raised in the newness of life, to walk in newness in the life. That, that this encouragement of walking in newness comes because Christ is resurrected. So God must have some intention for me now. And, and five and the following build on it. Look at verse five. For if we have been united with him in death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. If there is mystery, I think it's here. I, at least I want to encourage. I want to encourage the believer who maybe feels trapped or burdened by sin to say, listen, if Jesus Christ is your Savior, if you've trusted him to forgive you of your sins, which comes from the crucifixion, can you not also trust him in the resurrection from the grave? In other words, whatever joy you find from the fact that God's forgiven you of your sins, how much more, have we heard this phrase, how much more, the gift is not like the trespass, how often have we heard this now, how much more can we find a joy that we can now stand with him? In other words, the Lord is saying, the Lord is as much at work in your life now in a resurrected way as he was in saving you from death. God remains at work. And I want to read these next several verses, 6 through 11, I, I group together because they, uh, he builds around the thought that's already there. So he's already given the thought, which is, listen, Christian, view, remember, remember the baptism, remember your baptism. And he says, as Christ really died and was really resurrected, and as that really brought life and eternal life for us, so also you should consider your life as having died with him and as being resurrected in him. That's, that's what Paul's saying. He says, in that way, of course, holy living matters. It doesn't matter in order to get saved, but now that we are saved, we want to participate with the Lord. 
We want to be one with God. We want to be pure like the Lord and walk like the Lord and talk like the Lord. So, of course, we would want these things. Well, in 6 through 11, he's going to continue to build around them. He's just kind of bolstering them up. But as I read them, I want you to notice a pattern. And the pattern is, and this is a pattern for thinking. How do we think about the Lord? Here's the pattern. The pattern is that Paul is going to point to something that Jesus Christ has done for us and that is complete. And from that, encourage us to live well. And then he's going to go back and say, just as Christ has done this and as it is complete, he's going to say, therefore, go do this. And that's how we ought to think. If we're going to try to set our minds right before the Lord, we should start with what God has done for us and then follow the conclusions of that. So I'll give you an example. Verse 4 is a good example that we've already read. It says, We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, listen to this, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father. See, that has been fulfilled. It's happened fully. It's fully taken place. Just as he was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. So there's, a, there's an expectancy in our life that comes from a finality in Christ's life. Okay, and follow, follow this pattern. So look in verse 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we might, would no longer be enslaved to sin. You see, you see what happened versus what's expected? We know that our old self was crucified with him. That's done. That's done. He says, in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, reduced to insignificance is the idea in the Greek. And I got to say, I'm encouraged. I'm encouraged when I read words like this because what I don't see is this punctiliar expectation that I become immediately perfect once I'm in Christ. I see a careful, encouraged expectation that as I walk with Christ, the body of sin is reduced to nothing. And that, there's hope in that. Seven and eight, he does the same thing. Listen to this. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we've died with Christ, see, there's the finality. If we've died with Christ and we know that, we believe we will also live with him. There's the expectation. Look at nine through 11. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Listen to all the finality of these verses. He will never die again. It says, death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. There's all what Paul's saying. He's kind of rounding the whole argument. I mean, saying, look at all that Jesus has already done. Verse 11. So, you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. You must consider it. It doesn't sound like a big thing. It sounds like a small thing. But it's a big thing. The way you consider yourself before the Lord sets the tone for your life. Ideas have consequences. How we think works itself out. In fact, every sin, you know, every sin we're living in is a lie that we've chosen to believe. And so the first thing that needs to happen in these areas is to begin to believe the right thing. And the right thing is this. 
in Christ's death, you have been forever saved from the consequences, the eternal effects of the sin. And in Christ's life, we've been called to walk with him in the newness of life and to flee that pattern. Twelve through fourteen summarize it. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness, for sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace. This is, I think this is a hard world to live in uh, for Christians. To accept and believe that their moral living plays no role in their salvation, but yet, once we are in Christ, to have the right conception of moral living. And I'll give you a few examples. This, this is, so maybe you can see them in your own life. Uh, one example uh, would be a lawless Christian. So someone who has a very big conception of the grace of God in their life, very big sense of the grace of God in their life, uh, so big, in fact, that, that the need for living a holy life is not a big deal. Now, you, you might say to yourself, who does that? Well, I do that in small ways. And I think you do that in small ways. There's times I have, as as bizarre as this may sound, there's times I have repented of the sin I'm about to do. And then, like, thought of myself before the Lord, like, how can I do that? I said to the Lord, Lord, I'm going to sin, and then I'll be back. That is the spirit of lawlessness in me. And I think there's a mild lawlessness that follows in many of us who for a moment, maybe we have the right to get angry and lash out in anger to our family. We have the right to use those sorts of words because it it feels good in the moment. And we know we can come back because she'll love us in poor and in sicker and in death. There's just a sense that she'll, Jesus will always be there. And there's a rightness in that and there's a wrongness in that. And that's, that's one extreme. The other extreme, which is in me too, so I imagine it's, it's in you too, it's, it is this idea that Jesus saved us and the work of Jesus worked very hard to save us, but now that I'm in the faith, man, I better live up to the gift I've received. I mean, I better produce. I better produce serious fruit. Jesus says, remain in me and bear fruit. He doesn't say go bear fruit. He says remain in me. Remain in me and bear fruit. This is what Paul's saying. He says, don't you realize what he's done for you out of that disposition? If you have the right disposition, a right, don't hear this denominationally, a right Baptist disposition of what has happened for us and what we've shown through the waters of baptism, if we see that right, 
Why would we not want to live for the Lord? And in that, there's no dread or there's no fear or there's no pressure. It's, it's, it's absent of the you better produce, but it's also absent of the, oh, it doesn't really matter. It's sitting right there as God did it for me and he's making me like him. That is the right thinking of a Christian that produces holy life. And that's what's shown here this morning. We are not under the law, we're under grace. Death has no dominion over us. But we're called to walk in newness. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we're on our way to how to, but set our minds right. In doing this, Lord, I pray for those here that you would show them areas where their thinking is perverted about your grace or about your truth. Whether it's in their minds they've been uh, given themselves too much license, which has been forgetful of your death and resurrection, or whether in their lives they've been applied to themselves too much pressure to produce, which is forgetful of your death and of your resurrection. We ask, Lord, to set our minds straight and to work through through our conception of you, our consideration of you, uh, to do good things. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.